that's another story. Uh, welcome to Friday night. It's great to see you. I'm thrilled to be home. Now, this is my attire for work. I was called a gentleman today because I was wearing this, but you might look and go, he looks kind of like an old guy. That's totally fine. Now, yesterday I had an amazing opportunity. Call me that. Yeah, thank you. I had an amazing opportunity to go with my family to Disneyland. They had this cool deal where if you buy um, for 150 bucks, you can buy three tickets. Anybody do this? So we did it. We went. We went. It's over. It ended yesterday. But we went twice earlier, and then yesterday went for the third time. And I gotta tell you, I had a blast. Disneyland is a fun place. As a kid, I didn't like Disneyland. I don't know if you guys. I thought Magic Mountain was better. Oh like, yeah. You know what I mean? Better Way rides. Better. Exactly. See, but then when I grew up. I realized Disneyland is actually better, no offense. And, and we just had a blast. We, went, we, we perfectly timed our fast passes. We rolled all over the place. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I needed the day away from work. Uh, I needed the day with my family. It was really fun to be with Zoe and Haley and run around the park. You gotta have a lot of churros. And here's the thing about churros. You gotta get there and if you think, oh good, there's no line, I'm gonna grab a churro. That's a mistake. You want a, you want a long churro line. You know why? Because you want, yep, you want those things to come rolling through that oven and they pop down the other side and they fall out and they're gonna burn your mouth and that's exactly the way you want them. They dip them in sugar and roll them. They're so good. For $4.50, leave and take them and make them blue or red. Where's Brittany? What? <laughs> okay, there you are. They'll dip them in blue or red uh, sugar and then put them in a little lightsaber holder. Oh, and you can get like that. So I didn't get you one, no, because it wouldn't have been warm anymore. But anyway. And he got you a scout one. They are building a whole new Star Wars land there, which is kind of cool. It'll be open sometime in 2035. And it's just, it's just a great thing. A lot of interesting people. You walk around and look at the different couples who are there and look at the different singles who are there. And it's just a really interesting place, I think. But uh, I had a good time with all three of my girls. I remember on days like that how much I love my wife, why I chose to marry her, and why she's amazing. I remember my priority as a father spending time with Zoe and Haley, just so good. And we had a great time. So you didn't need to know all of that, but because I didn't write an introduction, that's going to be it tonight. Now listen, open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. And we are beginning a new chapter. If you're new with us, we've been walking through the book of Titus all year. We're almost to the very end of it. Titus is a little three-chapter epistle. That means it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians on the island of Crete. Now, Crete was, is a little island still there in the Mediterranean. And, uh, and this is some instruction to the church, to Titus, the pastor, to the, some of the churches that were there on that island. And here as we begin a new chapter, chapter 3 the uh, thought shifts, okay? This is a new topic. In chapter one, if we were just doing a brief summary, chapter one was instruction for the leadership in the church. You can look at, it talks about the elders and it talks about how to get rid of false teachers. Chapter two is about uh, the instructions for the Christians in the church. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, even slaves that were there inside the church that were Christians and how they're to live. And we said chapter two is all about how grace changes everything. And now as we move to chapter three, we have instruction for how to live the Christian life in the world. And if we were going to just put a theme on this chapter, it would be living for God in a godless world. Okay, living for God in a godless world. That's what this is. It's instruction on how to live for Christ in a world gone haywire. 
Now, it is true. I want you to think about this. Think about the world that you live in. This world is a dark place, isn't it? It really is. All you have to do is turn on the television and look at the news to see that there's a lot of chaos and a lot of evil in this world. We could say that this is an anti-God world. It is a world where the minority uh, are, are, are Christians. The minority are living for God and trying to, to obey Christ. <laughs> living for God is not the norm, we would say. The Bible describes this world as lost, as dying, as under judgment. And it describes your responsibility as a Christian to live differently than the world around you. It describes your life as a Christian and your purpose to live in light of eternity, not in light of what's right in front of us. Your responsibility is to shine as a light in a dark place and to impact your world for Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, you're to live in a way that people look at your life, they view how you live, and they say something is different about them. In the words of Matthew 5.16, they should look at your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. They should look at you and say something's different. Something's unique about this person. Something is, is almost strange. There should be some desire to know why you're different. Why are you happy when things go wrong? How can you have joy when life doesn't deal you the hand that you want? How can you be at peace when there are all sorts of trials going on in your life. Right? That's, that's a Christian. How can you be satisfied with little? Why do you have a different vocabulary, watch different movies, have a different type of drink? More than likely non-alcoholic is where I was going with that. Why is your lifestyle different? Your life, Christians should question or, or should cause others to question their own life. It should confuse them a little bit because you live so counterculturally to the world. Why do you do the things you do? They should ask that. Why are you different? In short, you are to live for God in a godless world. This world does not honor Jesus as king, but Christians do. We live by a different set of rules. We live by a different motivation. We live for a different purpose and a different end. And the thrust of this chapter, like I said, is living for God in a godless world. And this is tough. It's difficult. There we go. It's hard to stand for Christ. It's hard to be the odd man out. It's hard to say no to your flesh, isn't it? It's hard to guard your tongue and to shield your eyes from sinful things. But Christian, you have been set apart for that purpose. You have been called not to look like the world around you, but to be different. Now, if you're not a Christian, let me just explain this to you. First of all, we're so glad that you're here. If you're trying to figure out what is Christianity, what does the Bible teach, <laughs> kind of searching, trying to figure out who God is and how you can have a relationship with him, or maybe you're just here because somebody brought you and you thought, oh, they're making dessert tonight. That'll be cool. Christians are simply people who have submitted their entire lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They live not for their own personal gain, but to honor him in every aspect of life. Not for self, not for pleasure, not for possessions, not for relationships, not for sex, not for anything else. Christians live for Jesus Christ. Tonight, tonight in these two verses in Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, 
We're given instruction on how to live for, for God in the godless world. Okay, we're going to dive in. There are three points in our outline, and, and basically these three points serve as reminders. These are reminders to you of how to live or why to live or just reminders of, of, of you as a Christian living for God in a godless world. It, it, these are three summary statements, I would say, about living for God in a godless world. So let me give you a few reminders that Paul gives us. First is this. And I, let me say it this way. Point number one. You are forgetful. Admit it. That's point number one. You need a reminder because you're forgetful. Christian, you are. Look at those first two words in Titus chapter 3. Everybody look down your Bibles. Titus 3 verse 1. Look at the first two words. Remind them. Remind them. Now this looks a little different in the original language than it does in English. In the Greek, it's what's called a present active imperative. That is to say, it is the strongest possible type of command in the Greek language. It's, it's, the, it's the very strength of what Paul can use. And it's a verb tense that is continual. It is like he is saying, remind them, and then keep reminding them. And then remind them again. And then after that, remind them some more. That's what this is here. It is a command to Titus that you are to go and to remind them. Now, who, who is the them? Who's the them? Anybody want to take a guess? The them is the church. The them is the Christians on the island of Crete. And the verb remind is to basically call to mind what is already known. We're not going to break any new ground tonight, okay? We're going to go back over things that we already know. That word remind is recall it or think about it again. No new information. You already know this from the past. The Christians of Crete, those who are in the instruction of Titus, those in the church, the ordinary, everyday Christians on the island of Crete, the run-of-the-mill Christians, this is who it's to. Now, why do you think they need to be reminded? Any ideas? Why do you think? I'll give you a hint. Point number one, it's because they're forgetful. Because these Christians were forgetful. Because in the busyness of life, in the friction of relationships, the complexities of work and education and family life, they had a tendency to forget what God's word had said and what the instructions are to every Christian. Can you relate to that? Have you ever forgotten? Have you ever drifted a little bit? Have you ever made it to Friday night? Your hair is still singed, a little bit on fire. Your phone hasn't stopped ringing. You're barely keeping your head above water, only to realize, Christian, that you haven't thought about God all week long. You've been so preoccupied that your Bible still sits on the shelf, undisturbed, and your prayer life has been non-existence. This life, my friends, that's the Christian life. It happens to all of us. We get busy. We have deadlines. There are projects to do, tests to take, time cards to punch. And oftentimes we look back to find that God has been far from our minds. Can you relate to that? In any way you get to the end, you're like, I haven't thought about God once. I've been living somewhere else this week. Maybe it's because you're too busy. Maybe it's because there's deliberate sin in your life. Maybe it's just the drift of apathy or the draw of illicit sin. But no matter how you slice it, like the Christians on the island of Crete, we need to be reminded too. We do. 
We do because we're forgetful too. Isn't it easy to forget and to drift and to wander? It happens to all of us. It is a passive process like putting a twig in the water and watching it flow downstream. It happens automatically. To live for God in a godless world is an active process swimming against the current. And God knows this. So he, he gives reminders to us. He gives us reminders. Think about this. And, and I'm not going to take you to these passages because we don't have time, but in Genesis 3, verse 24, there is a flaming sword given. Have you ever thought about this? Adam and Eve fall. God curses the earth. And then he puts a, a cherubim and a flaming sword at the edge of the Garden of Eden. And it says, he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the tree of life. Okay, there, there was a physical flaming sword that moved about and guarded that tree. Did it really need to be there? What was it there for? God put it there as a reminder I mean, it's a protection, obviously, but as a reminder, too, you can't eat. You disobeyed. This, does that make sense? As a reminder, if you think about uh, in Genesis chapter 9, God says, I'm going to hang my bow. He talks about his war bow, like a bow. I'm going to take that bow, and I'm going to hang it in the sky. So that every time it rains, you'll see this beautiful bow, which is described as the war bow of God, <coughs> hanging in the sky as a reminder that I will never flood the earth again. And it says in, in Genesis 9, God made an eternal covenant with Abraham and his descendants. It's a reminder that God will never flood the earth again. In Exodus chapter 12, there's the Passover. And they were instructed to put blood on the doorposts and it says there that it was to be done by every generation for all time for every Israelite. You know why? So that they would never forget that God delivered them. It was a reminder. In Joshua chapter 4, as they're crossing the Jordan to the promised land, God gave instruction to Joshua saying, take 12 men from the 12 tribes. Go and pick up rocks and go pile them together. Why? It will function as a, a memorial and a reminder to all of the sons. Listen, in, in, in Joshua 4, verse 7, it says, So these stones shall be a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Why? Remember what God did. He brought them to the promised land. And one more simple one, communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, literally Jesus said, This I give to you. Why? In remembrance of me. Bread to remember his body juice to remember his blood physical reminders because he knows that we're forgetful people that we we just get to a point where we kind of drift and wander and and wander away that's who we are why the belabored point because i want to drill into your head into my own head that we need the reminder and so here paul writes this in the strongest possible command remind them Put these things back in front of them. The word of God, the things you already know, the truth of God that we need to remember. We still use reminders today. When I married Shelby and Zach, I said this. I said this. Zach and Shelby, here's a quote, have chosen rings as a symbol of their union. And it is my hope it's a reminder. It is my hope that every time you see that ring, it would remind you not just that you are married, but of your commitment to love, <laughs> honor, and serve one another. When you see it atop the steering wheel, 
or it clinks against the dishes you are washing, or the sun catches it in just the right light so that it shines with brilliance, or when it gets a bit tighter around your finger than it is today, may it always remind you that you belong to each other. That's the point of a ring, okay? It's not just jewelry that looks good. It's a reminder that you belong to another and of the covenant that you made. Again, the point belabored is that we need reminders. Do you know that sticky notes are a multi-billion dollar business, right? Why do you tie things around your finger? Why do you use wanderlust or some other to-do list? Why do you put three by five cards on your mirror or in your car? What's the point? The point is you're trying to remember and keep things fresh in your mind. You need reminders and right here, as we consider living for God in a godless world, the Holy Spirit wants to get your attention. He wants to remind you of certain things. He wants to pull you out of that spiritual stupor, Christian, and he wants to press certain realities into your heart. He wants to remind you. The first, this should have all been introduction, by the way, but the first thing he wants to remind you of, point number two, isn't that interesting? Anyway, point number two, he wants to remind you that you are not God. (laughs) Embrace it. You are not God. Embrace it. Point number one, you are forgetful. Admit it. Point number two, you are not God. Embrace it. Look there at verse one one more time. It says, remind them, we looked at that already, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, you may not immediately make the connection to the name of the point, you are not God. I don't see how that fits in. So let me just show this to you in the text. And before we get into that, let me just give you a little bit of background. Let me say it this way. My friend, you are not autonomous. As much as you like to believe that you have freedom and are able to make decisions in your life, at the end of the day, as you're thinking about how autonomous and free you are to do as you want, your boss says, hey, get back to work. Am I right? Stop daydreaming and get back to the job. Your mom tells you, hey, go clean your room. Does that still happen? I'm sure it does. The teacher tells you, oh, put your pencil down, test is over. And you're like, I just got to... No, you're not free, are you? The red light comes on your rearview mirror, and you don't just go, oh, I'll just keep on driving a little farther. Maybe he... No, what do you do? You pull over. You know why? Let me give you a little reality check here. You are not sovereign. Okay? You are not in control. As much as you would like to think that you have power and authority to do as you please, daily life reminds you the exact opposite is true, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Are you, do you agree with that? Let me say it a different way. You are not God. That's a simple reality. Only God is God. Psalm 115 verse 3 says that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Only he is sovereign. You and I are not. We are finite. We, are, we have a beginning and an end. We were taken from the dust of the earth and to dust we will return. And each of us is under the authority of others. And you guys, we struggle with this, don't we? This is a difficult reality to come underneath other people. Do you understand what really happened in the garden? Do you ever think about this? You say, yeah, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. It's like some lame story from you know, Genesis. Do you realize what actually went on there? Listen, 
The serpent said, if you eat of this, you will be like God. That was the sin. The sin wasn't just, ooh, shiny apple. The sin was that they wanted to be like God. They desired autonomy to live as they, des- they saw fit, to make their own rules, to not have to come under the decisions of another, but to say, if I want this, I'll take it. That's the sin of Genesis 3.5, that you will be sovereign. And you've got you to gotta admit, that's still what we want. Think about your own heart. Isn't that what you want, to have complete control? to have no one tell you what to do, to have no one get in your way or deny you of your rights. You want to act as God in your life. This came true for me yesterday at Disneyland. We were leaving the park, and we were in that forsaken line at the end to get on the tram. And we were in the front because we didn't make it on the one, and the tram pulls away and the lady comes on. Excuse me, please step behind the line. And I looked down, and my foot was like three inches over the line. And I thought, I'm not moving my foot. I'm not doing it. Why? What would, what would this take me to do? What's the point? I didn't want to come under the authority of another. I don't want to listen to them. If I want to stand here, because I've been here all day and I paid $150 for three days of fun, I want to be able to stand where I want to stand, right? Or how about the fact that we, were, uh, we had a fast pass for Thunder Mountain, the wildest ride in the wilderness, and, and it was a great ride. And, and we were going up that second hill, coming down, and I was trying to take a picture. I had a, like the camera up, a video, take a picture and video, whatever. And the girls, Haley was next to me, and Tracy and Zoe were behind me. And we come up over the hill, and you come down to the right, and it's a hard bank. And I wasn't paying attention. I was filming, trying to get all of us in there. And we came down. We were in the back, and it was like a slingshot. I slid to the left so hard, and I just smashed my poor little daughter. She comes up to about here on me, and I just crushed her. And she was like, it's okay, Dad. It's fine. No problem. And I looked over, and the bar is down on my legs, touching my legs. And her legs are like this thick, and my legs are like this thick. And there was like a full foot between her legs and the bar, and I was thinking, this is not safe. How do they, like, how do, they do this? She could just fly right out. It's a good thing I pressed. No. Anyway, so... But we walk up to the line, and it's fast, fast, it's 145. So we walked all the way across the park, we get there, and we walk up to the front, and, hand the, and the guy goes, I'm sorry, I can't let you go. And I look at the things, 145, I look at the clock that's right behind him, it's 143. And I'm telling you, in that moment, I don't have much of a temper, but my blood boiled in about two seconds. I looked at him and I went like this. I took them back and I went, and I just stared at him. I moved out of the way, people go by, and I just stared at him in a very godly, quiet way for, for the next two minutes. St- like just staring daggers as much as I could. Why? Why? Because he denied me what I wanted, because he was an authority over me and I did not want to submit and come under that. In, in that moment, I was reminded, and maybe you can relate, that I am not God, okay? That there are other authorities in my life. Someone tells you no or denies you what you want, and immediately it, the pride rises up within you. And in verse 1 here in Titus, we're reminded that we are not God, that there are authorities in our life that we must come under. And let me just draw this on an organizational chart for you, okay? The org chart of business, 
If you're looking at the org chart of authority, at the very top, you would have God. Okay? There's God by himself. Jesus says this in Matthew 28, 18. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is no question that he is king of kings and lord of lords, and a day is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus is lord. Okay? But God has put different levels of authority into every one of our lives. In fact, Hebrews, excuse me, uh, Romans 13.1 says that all authority is given by God and put in place by God. Any authority in your life. So what are those authorities? Different levels. If you have parents, most of you do. Ephesians 6.1 says, children, obey your parents. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. You, as a child, are under the authority of your parents. Now, as you get older, the obedience thing kind of shifts. You get out of the house. You're always going to honor obedience still while you're under their roof. Some of you are still in that spot. Okay? And you may grade against that. Huh? That's probably true. Secondly, if you're a woman who's married, your husband is your authority. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Be subject to them as to the Lord. Or even in, chap- in Titus chapter 2, it's talking to the young women in verse 5, and they're encouraged to be subject to their own husbands. Women, you someday, when you get married, will be under the authority of your husband. That's the way God designed it. We can talk about it later. I don't have time right now. Third, you've got parents. You've got husbands. Third, you've got elders and other church leaders. Okay, Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Speaking of the church, obey your leaders. It's a general command to the congregation. To, to, to you, as a churchgoer, as a Christian, to, listen again, obey your leaders and submit to them. It's pretty strong, isn't it? You are to come under the authority of your leadership. It says this, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That's on my side, as the authority, I will give an account for how I shepherded you and the rest of the church. Your responsibility Obey and submit. And the verse ends by saying this. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So, are you coming under the authority of the church? Under the authority of your parents? Wives, under the authority of your husband? And lastly, under the authority of other human institutions like government? Uh, Hebrews 13.1, excuse me, Romans 13.1 says that that authority has been established by God. And Titus 3.1 says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, and to be obedient to those who are there. Now, let me ask you this question. Where do you line up in each of those areas? Think about those areas in your own life. You've got God. You've got all these other authority pieces. And then where are you? Let me just help you. You're at the bottom, okay? You are at the bottom. You don't have the authority. And nor do I. Except for where God has placed me or maybe placed you in some other level of authority. But typically we're at the bottom. God has placed those in your life above you. You are under them. You know why? Because you're not God. And you're not autonomous. And you're not free to live as you desire. And Paul gives us a little more detail in chapter 3 verse 1. He uses two nouns to get this more to the point of what's in the text. He says you are to be subject. Look in your verses. Look in your Bibles. You are to be subject to the rulers and the authorities who are in your life. Now these two words, rulers and authorities, are used together 10 times in the New Testament. Okay, and always in this order, rulers and authorities, kind of sandwiched together. And if you put this together with all the other usages, it's pretty clear that this is a reference to various forms of human government. 
So if I said it a different way, you are to be subject to and to obey every human form of government in your life. <coughs> okay, now there's, I said this already, but there's a threefold response to this. You're to be subject, you're to obey them, verse 1, and you're to be ready for every good deed. Now the word subject, to be subject to them, is that word for submission. It's to place yourself under them, willingly, okay? It, it is to be under the orders or directives of another. The word for obedient is uh, the visible demonstration of the attitude of submission. Does that make sense? Submission is mentally saying, I will come under you. Obedience is how it fleshes out in your life. Okay, you will be obedient to them and coming under them. This is tough like we've been talking about because we live in an anti-authority culture. We buck the system. We fight back against the rules. We strike, we rally, we protest, we march. Let's go. But what does this text tell us to do? It calls us to submit. It calls us to obey. In a world where we may not agree with our leaders, particularly their hairstyles, or their political choices, we're called to submit to them. In discussing this, one commentator said, Paul did not want the gospel to be identified with political agitation that would bring crispy Christianity, not crispianity. Let me start over. Paul did not want the gospel to be identified with political agitation that would bring Christianity under suspicion as just being a counter-political movement. Be careful. The point of Christianity is not to wave the religious flag so that we can impact the society through uh, politics. That's right. The gospel is not a countercultural social movement that fights against the established authorities. No, no, no. Listen. The gospel, Christians come under that authority. Christians are willing to submit to that authority according to Romans 13. As the authority has been placed there by God. In fact, Romans... Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says this, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. That's it. Put yourself under that. You can read Romans, 12, or Romans 13 later. I don't have time to dive into it deeper now. But the purpose of Christianity is not to affect politics. The, person, the purpose of Christianity is to win people to Christ. It is in living for God in a godless world to demonstrate that there's something different, that there is a salvation, that there is eternity, that there is more to this life than meets the eye. And while Christianity is radically different from this world, it never calls people to rebel or dissent or to incite riots or revolutions. On the contrary, <coughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, calls you to submit to obey, to come under the law of the land. Now let me just read one verse. 1 Peter 2 verse 13 says this. Go, why don't you guys turn there. 1 Peter 2 13. It's towards the very back of your Bibles. And there are two main passages. When he says remind them of these things, these are the two passages. Romans 13, 1 through 7, and 1 Peter 2 verses 13 and 14. So right there in 1 Peter 2 verses 13 and 14, it says submit yourselves. Same idea, same word. For the Lord's sake to every human institution. Huh. That's interesting. Sounds similar. Familiar, doesn't it? <coughs> Whether to a king. Don't forget, they were dealing with Caesar who was murdering Christians. Whether to a king is the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. 
You are to come under the law of the land regardless of how it makes you feel because you are not God and God has placed that in authority over your life for you to submit to it. Now, when it, go back to Titus chapter 3 and look at the end of chapter 3 verse 1. We are told to submit. We are told to obey them. And look at the last phrase there. We are to be ready for every good work. This extends the Christian's responsibility from a mere passive posture of just obeying the laws, keep it under the speed limit, okay, don't do anything illegal, to an active, positive involvement in society, being ready for every good deed. As good citizens, believers must be prepared and willing to participate in activities that promote the welfare of the community. Okay, yeah, so you can go pick up trash on the side of the freeway. That would be okay, all right? We are not to stand coldly and, uh, and be aloof from praiseworthy enterprises of government, but be ready to engage. So let me ask you a couple questions, just to see if you're getting this. The United States is just over 200 years old. Should our founding fathers have rebelled against the nation of England, of Great Britain, and started this country? Don't answer out loud, but think about it, yes or no. Well, they were doing it for religious freedom. And they were justified based on the taxes that were being charged and, and what happened in Boston and a bunch of other things. Yes, yes. It was, we can talk about this later, but the answer is no. They acted in disobedience to the scripture. Now, we are probably very thankful for America, I'm not saying that, but does it square with the Bible and this command? It doesn't. Well, what about, okay, let's go to a different side of this. What about William Wilberforce? You may not recognize his name, but no single individual did more for abol abolition, yes. thank you, of slavery than William Wilberforce in England. He fought and worked his entire life through the political system to bring that to a close. Was that wrong to do that? No, I think that was probably right. Because here, But here he is. He's challenging the wrongs of government. Okay, or, or you could say today, what about the fight against abortion? Should we not be defending the innocent and standing for them? And I would argue the answer is yes, but the question is how are we doing that? And we can't go any farther into these now except to say, Christian, that you are called to submit, you are called to obey, and you are called to actively look for God opportunities to do good to others in the sphere of community and government. Now there's one caveat, one caveat to all of this that the scripture gives us when we are to not obey and submit to government. And that's in Acts 5.19 where Peter says we must obey God rather than men. Now first, or excuse me, Titus chapter 3 verse 1 alludes to this. If there's some instruction from the government that says do this, and it's in direct opposition to the word of God, then what is our response? Our response is to obey God first. The emphasis in Titus 3.1 on doing what is good limits our obligation, doesn't it? We don't do things that are not good. We're ready for every good work. We only operate within the lines as long as the state is calling us to do what, what is good and not what is evil. Now, one author said it this way, I, I like this. If you're in a tough time and we may be heading this direction where the government is calling you to do something that is anti-God, listen to what he says. It's a little long, but stay with me. He says, quote, again and again, there have been times when the people of God are persecuted and martyrdom has come. That is, they've given up their lives for the cause. Then nothing more is possible in history. All that remains is the sole decision to confess 
or to deny. Yet again and again, there have also been times of open doors and favorable opportunities for mission, for service to the poor, and for the liberation of the oppressed. In that time, we stand face to face with almost unlimited possibilities which can be realized, and we are filled with the joyful confidence that this world can be made better. You get that? Depends on the, the state of government, and I won't go through all that, but it's a good quote. <coughs> Thank you. So let me ask you, how are you doing in the area of submission to your government? How are you doing with the new recent election, with laws and rules that you don't think are right? Why is the speed limit only 35 miles an hour on Calmia right there? I got a ticket there once. It makes no sense to me. 5.27 in the morning on the way to an elder meeting, a, a motorcycle cop pulled me over for doing 53 and a 35. What is the point of that? First of all, why is the cop out there at 5.27? Second of all, why isn't the speed limit like 75 miles an hour on that street? No, no, no. We are to come under the authority. Do you grade against Donald Trump? Do you push against the laws of our country? Do you push against why is it 21? I want to drink now. It's a stupid rule. I'm going to do it anyway. No, you're to submit. Why do I still have a curfew? Because your parents have put rules in your life. And guess what, friend? You're not God. And so your call is to come up and under them. And so Paul gives us a reminder because we're forgetful. And he gives us a reminder that we are not God. And if we would honor God in our life and live for him in a godless world, then we need to submit and obey and do good to others. You get that? That's what he's saying. And that puts us on to point number three, our final point. He's reminding us that we are to be like Christ. So live it. You're to be like Christ. You're to be a demonstration, a, a model, a picture of Jesus Christ. You, Christian, are to live differently in this world. Look at verse 2. It says there, we are to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, and showing every consideration for all men. And here Paul extends the instruction beyond just rulers and authorities. So if verse 1 was talking about the government and human <coughs> institutions, verse 2, he's extended this into all of life in the world. You'll notice in the text, look down at your verses, there is no subject in verse 2. The verbs just roll on from verse 1 to verse 2. To be like this, to be, to be, to be, etc. There's no subject. And some might say that this goes back to the original subject of rulers and authorities in verse 1. But I don't think so. Because look at how verse 2 begins and ends. He says to malign no one. Okay, that's bigger than rulers and authorities. And look at how it ends. Showing every consideration for who? For all men. This is bigger than just rulers and authorities, okay? There's more here. While it definitely applies to the authority over you, it is broader than that. And it's a reminder again that Christians are different. That Christians are not like the world around them. And we'll see next week in verses 3 through 8 that they've been transformed from the inside out and had their inner sin removed, forgiven, and they're made alive in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that Christians are new creations. Ephesians 4.1 says that they walk in a manner worthy of the calling. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says that their ambition, whether at home or absent, is to be pleasing to the Lord. And so this reminder comes to you this evening to live in a way that shows off Jesus Christ. And there are four traits given there in verse 2. The first two negative, the second two positive. Let me just work through these very quickly. The two negative ones. If you would be like Christ, then you would, look at the text, malign no one. 
The Greek word is the word blasphemeo. Okay, we get the word, obviously, blaspheme from this. It is to slander. It is to defame or speak evil of someone. Let me say it this way. Your words matter. They do. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Your words matter. They have the power of life to build up and encourage. Have you ever had a bad day and you're just, you know, you're running late and you've got to run your stockings and your eyeliner is running and you've got the runs and you're like, somebody walks up to you and they say something like, hey, you've got really pretty eyes. And it, tell me that it doesn't change everything, right? But words also have the power to tear down and to hurt. That's why James 3.8 says that no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. We know that words reveal our heart. Jesus said in Luke 6.45 that out of the heart the mouth speaks. And when you malign and speak evil of people, or, or you gossip or you slander, guess what? It, it shows what's in your heart. And in Matthew 12.36 Jesus says that I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for in the day of judgment. You will be judged by your words. It says every careless word. Have you ever spoken a word in anger to your parents? <coughs> Yelled at a sibling? Said something behind somebody else's back? Dropped the Lord's name in vain? Slandered somebody? You will give an account for each one of those words. This includes words against our government leaders as much as against our bosses, our teachers, our parents, our friends. We are to be characterized by a different type of speech. In Ephesians 4.29, it says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Not even one. But only such a word is as good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. We are to build up, not tear down. And so like the psalmist, we must be careful. He says in Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. How are you doing with your tongue? You maligning people, speaking evil of them, slandering? This would say that if you would be different and living for God in a godless world, that you would learn how to control your tongue. Second, the second negative one, not just to not malign, but is the word to be peaceable there. And, and I, like I said, this is negative because in the Greek, it's actually to avoid quarreling. It's written in the negative, but it shows a positive in our English language. The Christian is different, right? The Christian is different. They don't pick fights. They end fights. You might have started this, but I'll end it. No, it's not like that, okay? They don't quarrel or dispute. They live without contention. They're not a problem in class. They're not the problem at work. They don't have hot heads or incite problems in their environment. One commentator said, the Christian must not adopt the arts of the agitator. Well, that's pretty good. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, I love ice hockey. Raise your hand if you've ever been to an NHL hockey game. Okay, if you haven't, the first thing you need to know is bring a sweatshirt. Okay, it's ice, and it's going to be cold in there. Okay, the second thing you need to know is that it is the single best sport to watch live. It is super cool. They're moving like these giant men with no teeth 
are moving in incredible rhythm around the ice, forward, backward. There's five guys on each side plus the goalie, and they are, these ten guys are literally weaving in and out of each other in every conceivable fashion, never colliding, unless they want to. It's amazing. Hockey is awesome. I wish I would have grown up playing hockey. But it's also the most violent sport out there. Okay, you might think, well, it's hockey, it's dumb, they've got this little whatever. But hockey is amazing because they actually let guys fight. You, they get into a fight, and the whole team will gather around them, and these two guys are literally throwing punches. The gloves come off, the helmets get knocked down, and they're going at it. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And the, the, the referees don't step in until what? Until, somebody, until they go down, basically. Or they get locked up together, and then they'll break it up. When I was in high school, I went to a, to a hockey game. as the Kings versus the Oilers. And at the time, maybe it's been beaten by now, but it, was, it, it had the most penalty minutes ever awarded um, total time in any NHL hockey game in history. It was one fight from beginning to end, and it was flat-out phenomenal. I mean, they just brawled from beginning to end. And we left towards the end because my dad was worried that a fight was going to break out in the stands. It was that kind of tense. And I remember looking down on the ice and the fight was on one side, and I remember the goalie, his name was Kelly Rudy from the Kings, and he was skating down as fast as he could, the goalie, goalies never fight, <laughs> to the other side, all the way across, threw down his gloves, pulled off his helmet, and started beating on the other goalie. I mean, it was, it was absolutely insane. Okay. But this is not what peacemakers do, is it? <laughs> peacemakers reconcile. They love the unlovely. They bring peace. They offer something different when they're offended. Right? <laughs> In fact, Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all men. And, and Romans 12, 18 says that if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. This means that Christians pursue peace and go after peace. And if there's an issue, you're going to push and push and push for peace until that person pushes you back so far there's nothing left to do. And at that point, you're okay to leave it because the instruction is as far as it depends on you, be at peace. If they won't have it, that's okay. But you do everything to get there. So, you're to be peaceable. You're not to malign anybody. And then he moves on to number three. You're to be gentle. Gentle is to be considerate or to be meek to yield or to forbear, or even to be kind. This is different from our world. Charles Spurgeon said, I wish that every gentleman was indeed a gentle man. This person does not stubbornly insist on their own rights, but acts in courtesy and forbearance of others. In fact, this is listed on the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3.3. These two words are used together peace and gentle, it says there that they're not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, and free from the love of money. And the fourth characteristic, the last one there, it says showing every consideration for all men. To show is to cause or to be made known. It's to put on display every consideration for all men. And these are kind of synonyms, the word gentle and showing these considerations. This could be translated though, having perfect courtesy or showing meekness. It is to go one more step to show true humility. An attitude of the mind that's opposite of self-assertiveness and harshness. Notice the two modifiers in that little phrase right there. Every consideration for all men. Interesting. I would say it's pretty inclusive. 
no matter who, no matter when, no matter why, the Krishna is to demonstrate an attitude of humility or of courtesy in every opportunity to every person. Everyone in your life. I want you to think about a person you have a problem with right now. That person at work that's always lazy and you have to pick up the slack for them. They speak down to you. They don't treat you well. How do you respond? If you're living for God in a godless world, your response will be to show them consideration. That annoying sibling, that lazy coworker, that unreasonable boss, all to be shown kindness and humility. There is no limit to your humility or to the people that you're willing to show it to. Galatians 6.10 says, so that while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people. All people. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I title this point that you are to be like Christ. So live it. And let me tell you why I title it that way. Because Jesus Christ maligned no one. In fact, 1 Peter 2.23 says that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Can you imagine the all-powerful king on the cross as they're putting nails in his hands, thinking to himself, you're getting it now, I am going to get you. You're making fun of me now, you will pay. But what is he doing? In silence, he has entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. He didn't fight back. In fact, he said, Father, forgive them. Christ maligned no one. Look, look also, Jesus was peaceable, right? Jesus was peaceable. In fact, in Isaiah 9, 6, he's called the Prince of Peace. Jesus was gentle. In Matthew 21, 5, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is gentle and mounted on a donkey. And in, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, it says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, excuse me, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was gentle, and Jesus showed every consideration for all men. Matthew 9.35 says that he was going through all the cities and villages, teaching and proclaiming the gospel, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He went to everybody and anybody. It says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus showed every consideration for all men. Jesus was gentle, Jesus was peaceable, and Jesus maligned no one. He is our prime example, and as Christians, we seek to be like him, to live like him. And sometimes we need to be reminded that life is about Christ. And if we want to know how we're to live, then let us look at the model of that Jesus Christ. And in this text, he's calling us to be like him. So how are you doing? Are you gentle? Are you peaceable? How is your tongue? Are you doing good to others? Where do you fit in this, Christian? Maybe you need the reminder tonight. I certainly did. As we close, you've been called to live for God in a godless world. And like all Christians, you need reminders. First, you're forgetful. I mean, you need to admit it. Second, you are not God. Embrace that truth. Third, you are to be and to live like Christ. 
but go after it. Next week, we're going to see four more reminders in verses 3 through 8. And they are the reminder that you have a past in verse 3. You were once this, and you were this, and you were this, right? Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Remind yourself, be reminded that you have a past. The next point, be reminded that you are saved by the grace, love, mercy, and kindness of God. In verses 4 through 6. Next, be reminded in verse 7 that you have an inheritance. And finally, be reminded that you are to live in light of these things in verse 8. We'll see all that next week. Go ahead and put your stuff away. But as we close, as we close, Christianity is not about doing things and living better. It is about understanding. It is about understanding that you can never do enough to please God. It is about recognizing that we fall short in every one of these areas. And it's not just a moral code to try to climb the ladder ladder high enough to earn our way to God's favor. Christianity says simply this. There is nothing I can do in my own work. There is nothing I can do by myself, no matter how hard I try, to ever be made right with God. It is only through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, where he bore sin and took my sin away, that I can have life and forgiveness. And so like the words of Christ, I would encourage you. He said, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my load is light. We find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. If you're not a Christian and you want to know what it means to be forgiven of your sins and to have a relationship with God, then please come talk to us when this is over. Talk to the person that brought you. Come talk to me. I'd love to walk that through with you. And if you want to talk about the revolution, then please talk to somebody else. Okay. (laughs) Let's pray. we got two more songs. Is that right? Let's do that, and then we'll be done. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. Lord, we ask for forgiveness because we forget so quickly. So, Lord, bear with us in your patience and help us to, even tonight, remember and to come back to that place from where we've drifted. Remind us of your grace. The only reason we're here is not because we're good people, but because you are a gracious and merciful God. And so we sing tonight out of hearts that are full because of what you've done for us. May we live this week as living for God in a godless world. Help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you guys stay seated this first song?